Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. Um, I guess today is the CEO of Tioga Research. His name is John Newsom. Uh, we're going to talk about um, the skin structure of the properties and uh, the work that Tioga is doing. So, John, thanks for coming. Thanks, Rich. Uh, delighted to uh, contribute and uh, look forward to uh, the interview with you. Yeah, if you would tell me about Tioga, what's the premise for the company? Yeah, Tioga Research is a contract research organization, a CRO, and we're dedicated to doing research and early development of formulations applied to the skin. So uh, that is predominantly pharmaceutical formulations, but we also work in the beauty care, cosmetic, skin care area also, even if the majority of our work is uh, directed towards pharmaceutical products. And we support clients worldwide who are working to develop uh, new formulations, typically containing a, a given active ingredient that when administered to the skin can confer uh, some benefit to the taker or the patient. So that benefit okay. could be uh, to treat the dermatological condition, for example. Before we get into that, I have a question. Um, I didn't even know there was such a thing as a contract research organization. Who contracts with you and why? Like, why wouldn't they do this stuff in-house? There, there, are, there are three main reasons for that, Rich. Uh, the, the, the first is that uh, even large companies have very limited internal capabilities and it can be quite difficult to even if you have a very well-established group to uh, uh, get the work done that you need on a particular schedule. So that's the first benefit. Secondly, a lot of organizations don't have an internal uh, research uh, organization that can support that work. That's particularly the case for relatively small biotech companies that might be more or less virtual organizations where they don't have their own lab facilities. And the third reason that I think is most compelling, Rich, is the fact that over the years, because of our focus, we have uh, built and assembled capabilities that even uh, the largest companies on the planet lack. And therefore, there's a significant benefit to even those large companies in contracting us to help with formulation innovation okay so um back to the skin condition so are these um medical problems with skin or is it more beauty like what are some of the applications in which you worked or worked on well, that's a great question so if, if you think all of us use formulation products that are applied to the skin on a daily basis so whether it's soaps or deodorants i hope you use a deodorant rich um the they're administered to the skin, and uh, so we, we, we support uh, clients interested in developing next-generation products of those types. But 
still more compellingly um, in the uh, therapeutic realm, there are a lot of uh, dermatological conditions, for example, atopic dermatitis, psoriasis, acne, where a preferred treatment regimen is via a product that is applied to the skin exterior and from the formulation of which the active can diffuse into the skin and achieve the therapeutic benefit. But the benefits don't end there, Rich. Um, In addition to treating conditions that are uh, derived from disorders in or or where the symptoms are evidenced in the skin, there are some major benefits to delivering a drug transdermally, that's through the skin, even if the goal is to have the drug available to the entire body, i.e. systemically. So what are, what are you researching about the skin? I know it's complicated, there's multiple layers, there's pores, there's even a microbiome to it. Um, you know, what have you found? Is there a, I don't know, a critical flaw or entry paths that aren't being used or methods that would make current skin products work a lot, a lot better? Is there, are there any commonalities you're seeing? Good, good question. There are some cases where um, the barrier to entry is compromised in some way. For example, in a wound condition where the deeper layers of the skin or even uh, tissue underlying the skin may be exposed, and so a product can deliver an agent directly to the uh, tissues at which the benefit will occur. But urine my skin is an amazing barrier, Rich. The, the outermost layer of the skin, called the stratum corneum, is only about 10 to 15 microns thick. But it is that layer that's primarily responsible for keeping noxious molecules that we encounter in the environment outside our body, and at the same time, keeping our own molecules inside the body. Uh, without the stratum corneum, we would, we would be non-viable. So the, the challenge that we wrestle with each and every day is how do we discover combinations of molecules that are able to selectively permeabilize the stratum corneum to allow the ingress of the particular active that we're working on for a client. And uh, we built not only expertise, but technologies that allow us to do that exploration uh, more efficiently than we think most other groups on the planet. So uh, can you talk a little bit more about this, this entry mechanism and what's involved, you know, maybe um, what it looks like and, you know, how things migrate through it. And... Yeah, that, that's, a, again, a great question. So the, the, the three primary layers of the skin, are the, the outermost layer, the epidermis, and uh, that um, is the, the thinnest of the three, uh, the three layers. And I've mentioned the outermost layer of the epidermis being the stratum corneum. When we think of the stratum corneum as being 10 or 15 microns thick, you might say it's paper thin. But in fact, it's much thinner than paper thin. A, a typical piece of paper that you might print material on is, is approaching 100 microns in thickness. So the stratum corneum is, is almost a tenth as thick as a, as a piece of paper. Um, 
But underneath the stratum corneum are the other layers of the epidermis separated from the dermis, the thicker part of the skin, by the uh, basal membrane. And underneath the dermis sits the subcutis or the hypodermis, and that's where the adipocytes and, uh, and uh, more vasculature uh, sits. And that, in turn, is on top of the uh, underlying tissues. So in terms of delivery, the primary barri barrier to entry of a given molecule is uh, through the stratum corneum. Now, that's the case for intact skin, Rich. There are other mechanisms of ingress. I mean, we have hair follicles, we have glands and ducts that uh, have entries to the skin exterior. But each of those is also provided with its own barrier function. So they don't necessarily provide a highway for other, you know, for molecules into the body uh, by circumventing the, the intact skin. And concomitantly, they're not a barrier for our molecules leaving, uh, diffusing to, to, to the ex exterior. So most of the time, our focus is on asking the questions uh, relative to which cocktails of molecules can selectively permeabilize the stratum corneum for the molecule uh, that our client is interested in. Yeah, I've heard a lot of, um, I don't know, skin creams. I, I, I don't know, you know, again, I'm not in the industry, but legend has it. There's only a few approved ingredients for skin creams. And, you know, a lot of the skincare providers, they, they're, I guess, recycling these ingredients or in different combinations. And there's not a lot of novelty yet. Am I wrong or, you know, like what's the state of the art if you look at it just in the aggregate of, of compounds that affect the skin? That, that's a, a great question again, Rich. And there's two parts to the answer. The first is for drug products. So both cosmetic products in the U.S. and drug products in the U.S. are both regulated by the FDA. But in order to get a drug product approved, not only do the uh, active ingredient or ingredients have to be evidenced as being safe and efficacious. The inactive ingredients called the excipients also have to be no known to be safe. The way that happens uh, in the US is the FDA publishes an inactive ingredient database that is basically a list of all of the excipients that I have been used or are used in FDA-approved products for a particular mode of administration and dosage form. So in our case, we're interested in those excipients that have been, uh, that are already used in approved uh, drug products for topical or transdermal administration. And that's a relatively short list, but the, the plus is that what tends to work best in terms of facilitating delivery is actually cocktails of molecules. So it turns out it's quite rare that if we apply ourselves to uh, working even in that limited excipient space, that we're not able to discover novel combinations that are strong performers. And uh, as an aside, that is often a reasonable basis also for patentability. But that's on the pharmaceutical side. On the cosmetic side, we applied ourselves a couple of years ago to 
assembling a database of all excipients that are used in commercial cosmetic products. Um, that there are some subsets of that already available, like the list of generally regarded as safe compounds, the GRASS list, but there's no single coherent database of them all. So we work to assemble that. The long list contains over 17,000 entries. Many of those, though, are their biological extracts, things like uh, um, tea tree oil or lavender oil that actually are not single molecular entities, they're mixtures. So the second database we created was a subset of unique molecular entities, but even that list has more than 4,000 entries in it. So the net is in the cosmetic space, we have a much larger repertoire of excipients with which uh, to work relative to the, the substantially smaller subset that we have to work with in the, uh, in, in the pharmaceutical arena. And an excipient, uh, how, how do you define that? An excipient is a constituent of the formulation that is not directly responsible for the physiological uh, uh, benefit or, or activity. So it's a component that may facilitate the delivery of the active, but it itself does not confer biological uh, activity. Okay, so I guess there's active ingredient and then there's the excipients that come along with the active ingredient so that it can function properly. That, that's very well said, Rich. Yeah, so a typical pharmaceutical formulation, for example, that you might buy in CVS or Walmart or, or Rite Aid to uh, treat uh, a, a topical dermatosis uh, like a 1% hydrocortisone cream has 1% of the drug hydrocortisone in it and then 99% of the formulation by weight are inactive ingredients or excipients. So a typical cosmetic product may have 30 to 40 different inactive uh, excipients, inactive ingredients. A typical pharmaceutical product will have a lot less. It may be somewhere between 6 and 12, typically. But how often has it been discovered that um, the excipients do have a biological effect? There are instances of that. Uh, for example, menthol, um, that if you apply a, a formulation comprising menthol to, uh, to, to your skin, it, has a, it generates a cooling sensation, and it also acts as, a, uh, uh, as an analgesic. It can relieve, uh, can, can relieve uh, uh, a topical discomfort. Um, but it's also uh, included in the inactive ingredient database as, a, as an excipient, as an inactive component. But that is relatively, relatively rare um, in the pharmaceutical arena. And in part, that is because the, of the scrutiny that the FDA applies when considering whether or not to approve a new drug product. If they have an inclination that the what is nominally an inactive ingredient has some uh, physiological benefit, they will ask for a lot more information relative to that. And they may, in fact, consider a product that contains more than one active as what's called a combination product. And they will then ask the sponsor to evidence in clinical trials that the combination of the two 
works better than either of the two, uh, uh, than a formulation comprising only either of the two actives, which in turn have to work better than the placebo, the placebo being the base formulation with neither active present. So if one is developing a pharmaceutical product, it's actually something you want to avoid that a, an excipient actually may confer physiological benefit or give uh, the, the sense to the user that there may be physiological benefit because then when you're doing a head-to-head -head trial between the drug product and the placebo without the active, the placebo is going to have a, a strong response in the patient population, making it much more difficult for the, uh, the formulation comprising the active to show superiority over the placebo in the clinical trial. Yeah, but I see products all the time, you know, um, I don't know, this shampoo now with aloe vera, this one now with this to do this and that. And it seems, I, I mean, I guess, I would guess regulation is what drives the definition, partly at least of an excipient and an active ingredient. I mean, do companies, you know, add-ons uh, to an industry to this, ooh, all right, we'll use these active ingredients, they're already approved. All we got to worry about is the excipients and we'll come up with a new formulation and there's like a fast track to getting a product out there and not care about what it can do or are they compelled to, to do a trial on that? Like what's the landscape look like, you know, regulation-wise? It tends to be, again, even though both sides are regulated by the FDA, the requirements on the direct-to-consumer or cosmetic side are, are a, lot, uh, a lot more lenient at this point in time. For a drug product, the fastest route to market along the lines you described, Rich, would be an over-the-counter product. And that would be what you could go and buy in CVS, Walmart, Rite Aid, uh, Walgreens, and so on. Uh, those products conform to what is called a monograph. So the FDA, with input from the industries involved, has developed a document that defines what... A, an OTC, an over-the-counter product, can comprise. And so it will, it will define what the active ingredient is and what the concentration of that, what the maximum concentration that that can have. It will also provide some indication about which excipients are allowable or not, but it will also define what sort of marketing claims can be made for that product. And that is why you see uh, OTC products that are much plainer in their marketing claims because they're constrained by the monograph. Now, that the, the F, in order to enforce uh, the, uh, its provisions, the FDA needs to monitor, needs to be aware. If, some, if someone starts selling a drug product that has not been approved by one of the mechanisms that the FDA has, the FDA first has to be aware of the problem and then needs to take action against, against the, uh, the, the, the seller of that product. And typically that takes some time and uh, depending on how egregious and how, uh, how unsafe the practice may be, um, you know, the FDA you know, will give it a higher or a lower priority. Uh, but typically a warning letter will be sent to the uh, sponsor who will then be required to explain uh, their behavior and take appropriate remedial action. In the case of a cosmetic product, uh, 
that there are so many on the marketplace, it, it's, it's very hard to police, uh, police claims. In principle, any claim of uh, benefit to consumer should be supported by a scientific study, but in many cases, uh, such studies are, are, are not performed. The, the larger companies, the major cosmetic companies, uh, tend to be um, very disciplined in terms of not making claims that aren't supported by uh, some measure of uh, some measure of, uh, of, of of study. But uh, but there's no guarantee in any case that that will have been done. And in the case of you know aloe vera extract, uh, there are already very many products on the market claiming that the benefit of that and at least anecdotal reports describing the benefits. So if, if you were to produce a new product containing 20% aloe vera extract and, and sold that, I, I, I doubt that you would get a, a letter from the FDA taking issue with you. So what are some of the big core problems still out there that are, you know people are working to solve that haven't been solved in regards to skin? They were learning. One of the reasons I enjoy working in this field uh, so much is, uh, as with many domains of science, is, is we're learning new, major new things, you know, on a very regular basis. So if you, if you, if you kind of imagine your eye as being microscopic and you look, try and picture what the skin structure looks like at the molecular level. It, it, it's very complicated. You know, we, we can image the skin at some level of resolution. We can extract compounds from the skin and uh, analyze those. But when we put this constellation of molecules together in the skin structure, that there's huge amounts that we still don't understand. You know, the details of how a molecule in one of our formulations diffuses into and through the skin and what encourages it to remain in the epidermis or the dermis or to be released into the into the vasculature that's into the bloodstream you know we we know very little of that so a constraint for most molecules is that uh, anything bigger than about uh, 300 400 450 daltons in molecular weight so those are quite small molecules that the, the default permeability, the rate at which that a compound bigger than about that size will diffuse into the skin is, is, is de minimisly small. So the challenge that, and other types of molecules have very low skin permeability. So very fat soluble molecules, they might go into the stratum corneum, but not be released into the viable epidermis or, or dermis. Um, charged molecules or zwitterionic molecules that have both a positive and a negative charge in the same molecule, even if they're small, they have intrinsically very low skin permeability. So we would like to realize the benefits of delivery into and through the skin for this larger range of molecular types. We'd love to be able to deliver macromolecules through the skin. Uh, work's been done on insulin, for example, but uh, the, the problem there is in, you know, by uh, passive diffusion methods, you know, such a large molecule has essentially zero permeability. And even if it can get into the skin, the skin 
is replete with enzymes that degrade most peptides or proteins. So, so that's a big challenge. You know, how do we get the benefits of topical and transdermal delivery applied to a, a, a larger range of a larger range of compounds? Another, if I can quickly add yeah, one other point, Richard, just building on one of the other San Diego uh, contributors to to this this fantastic uh, uh, podcast, Rob Knight. Uh, he and his team and colleagues at UC San Diego is doing a stellar job on uh, unraveling that the impact that our microbiome has on our health and wellness, and the skin microbiome is a key part of that. And so we're still learning, you know, what aspects of the skin microbiome are important, which are beneficial to health and which are deleterious. So that's another another area of challenge. It'll be interesting. I wonder if there's um, certain microbes that can traverse the layers of our skin freely and if they have a certain job and if they do that, if so, you know. Well, the, the, my immediate, it, it's, not, it's not impossible but the likelihood is is quite small. I mean, our skin has the ability to sense uh, antigens, you know, peptides, parts of proteins or peptides that might trigger an immunolog- immunological response. The, the skin has the ability to, to sample those and, and generate a response. And we're still, you know, I have my own theories as to how that, that, how that happens, but, but that's an important facet. But but if, if microbes in general could get through the skin barrier, you and I would be a lot sicker than we are. If you think of the SARS-CoV-2, for example, COVID-19, that, that's a tiny virus. If that could easily permeate through the skin, you know, we wouldn't be wearing face masks. We'd be wearing complete, you know, suits and, and everything else. So, um so in general, microbes fortunately can't, can't get through the skin. So when we talk about the skin microbiome, we, what is probably more important is, is how they interact with the outermost layers of the stratum corneum, what uh, material that's being exuded onto the skin surface like sebum or sweat, they digest and what they produce in the process, what metabolites the microbiome produces and what benefits to skin health those metabolites actually have. Yeah, and I wonder if you could enter through various pores, hair follicles, sweat glands, etc., to get through the skin instead of just trying to, you know, batter up against the surface. It's a good thought, and, and there are ways, certainly, that you can encourage higher concentrations of uh, a particular material in the hair follicle region but again if if those roots provided a direct route into the body bypassing the skin barrier we we wouldn't be viable as beings right the, the whole function of the body exterior is to maintain the interior in a protected way and so if there were these pathways shunt pathways they're typically called that were in general, useful for foreign agents to get into the body, you know, then they'd be doing that all the time and we'd be a lot sicker than we are. But concomitantly, you know, a barrier, you know, the skin, it's, it's, not, it's not like a diode. What goes through one way can also come through the other way. 
Um, and so we'd also be leaking more molecules in, into the environment if, if these shunt mechanisms were generally significant. Is there a, a certain layer of the skin that is for the most part inaccessible that would be great if we can get to that's not all the way through it? Yes. Um, if, if we think of, you know, as if, if we imagine ourselves as a drug molecule on the outside of the skin, diffu you know, and we're a small molecule diffusing into the, into the skin. So we have this challenge of diffusing through the stratum corneum. And then it's a bit easier going when we get into the epidermis and then, and then the dermis. At this point, a few things can happen. The, the compound might stay in the dermis. And if we want to treat at least the symptoms of atopic dermatitis or psoriasis, that is where we want to concentrate the compound. If we want to treat a, uh, a skin discoloration, that is where we want the, 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 the compound to remain concentrated. But there are routes out of the dermis and the blood vessels basically are in the dermis, they allow a compound to diffuse into the bloodstream and then it's available systemically, just as if you'd swallowed, swallowed a pill for the, of, of the same drug. Or alternatively, it may enter the lymphatic system and be distributed and ultimately end up in the, the circulation uh, that way. Several compounds may be very effective at treating conditions that are evidenced in the dermis, but they may be systemically toxic. Maybe if they get into the liver, they have a deleterious effect. And so we would love to be able to achieve local concentrations of drug in the dermis while avoiding its uh, systemic exposure. So you're absolutely right in that regard, Rich. Okay. Well, very good. What, I don't know, you, do you sense any near-term breakthroughs in, in your work? Are there any uh, particular things that you think within the next year or two that may be seen either over-the-counter or, you know, clinically? The, the, for, for us, there are two sides to, to, to that answer. Our job, our mission in life is to support our clients worldwide. We have clients, you know, in, across the U.S., Europe, Canada, Japan, India, uh, Singapore, and so on. So our, our mission in life is, is to support our clients that are trying to develop next generations of products that are administered to the skin, whether they're to treat atopic dermatitis or psoriasis or whether they're to treat disorders of the central nervous system or hormonal imbalances. So, so that the, a, a lot of our excitement is driven by the new compounds or the new routes of administration that our clients are, are pursuing. And if you look at the list of clinical trials that are ongoing, uh, you know, the, 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 there's a huge amount uh, of activity in that area. But the second part of it is that in order for us to be of most value to our clients, it's important that we ourselves are continuing to push the envelope in terms of the ability to predict what will happen our ability to make more measurements when we can't predict so that we can find those cocktails of molecules that are particularly beneficial. And th th those are techniques that we call high throughput experimentation. So we've been working on those for a long time now. And, and each and every year we, we make some 
some some progress, some incremental and, and some a li little bit more step out. So against that backdrop, the, the what we're learning about microbiome, about how the skin, the skin's immune response armory samples the skin exterior. Um, as we learn more about, you know, virus behavior and, you know, how we might prevent ingress of noxious agents such as viruses. Um, you, you know, th th these are all kind of areas where I think we'll see significant progress over the next, uh, the next uh, 24 months. Well, very good. Well, John, what's the best way for people to find out more about Tioga and the work that you do? That's a good question. Uh, I, I'd recommend uh, uh, going to the Tioga Research website. That's uh, www.tiogaresearch.com. Or uh, if you have a particular question, uh, send it to uh, uh, info at tiogaresearch.com, and quite likely one of my, or one of my very capable colleagues will, will respond. Uh, we do try to play a a role in the global community, uh, scientific and, and lay. So, you know, uh, I, I've contributed in the past to uh, ask me anything on Reddit. I'm always pleased to do that. I'm always happy to, to visit schools or colleges to talk about what we do and field questions. And, uh, you know, we love being asked difficult questions because they, uh, th those are the ones that challenge us to think in new ways and continue to be creative. We could joke and say you really like to get under people's skin <laughs> in a good way. Wait, I'm, I'm going to use that, Rich. That's a, that's a good one. Thank you. Oh, sure. Well, great. John, thanks for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. No, thanks for your time, Rich. I've really enjoyed chatting to you. Uh, what, what an excellent set of questions. Really, really appreciate it. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.